we'll go ahead and get going. Uh, thank, thank you everyone for joining us on this wonderful Monday as we dive into the second half of the second section of Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus. Uh, we're going to do a quick recap over everything that was in the first half of the section, which we will try to get through in a very quick order. And then uh, Craig is going to lead us in a discussion and we're going to bound through the rest of this with any luck finishing it off today. So without Craig, I'll let you go ahead and uh, start up. Okay, so um, I think a good way to start is just to take a look at the questions that I put in the discussion chat. And actually, maybe the last question should be first. And I'll just read them off. It says, why did D&G, Deleuze and Gattari, choose schizophrenia as their model of desire? And then following that, what is a connective synthesis? What is a disjunctive synthesis? What is meant by a paranoiac machine and what is meant by a miraculating machine? So these are a few concepts that we need to navigate today, particularly in order to understand the final parts of this section here. Um, so uh, would anybody be willing to give just a, a very brief summary uh, as to why Deleuze and Gattari chose schizophrenia as their model of design? Let me uh, see if I can jump in and answer here. Um, okay, go for it. So my understanding is that they are using this model um, <clears throat> to uh, basically kind of try to break thought out of the psychoanalytic uh, capitalistic box that it's been put in and uh, try to open up thought to this experience of uh, thinking before the even man-industry divide, but in particular the industry-nature divide, or sorry, man-nature divide, but uh, in particular industry-nature and um, undermining uh, the uh, focus on the neurotic as a normal being uh, because it's been created as such by capitalism. Um, right. I, I don't, um, thank you. Yeah. I think the, the, the most uh, important point that you mentioned <clears throat> is the relationship of uh, Deleuze and Gattari's notion of schizophrenia vis-a-vis uh, -vis psychoanalysis. Um, I don't know it necessarily if schizophrenia Schizophrenia, what, what they'll say later on is that cap capitalism is characterized by a, a sort of schizophrenic dynamic. Um, and what they'll say is that desire in general, uh, as the, the sort of universal form of desire, is schizophrenic in virtue of its ability to be multiple and to be fragmented. Um, is there anybody who wanted to add to that before I sort of move on into the text? Well, I'd just like to mention that um, I think I said this before, that uh, this book is kind of on the same form as Logic of Sense. In Logic of Sense, they're looking at the relationship between sense and nonsense from the point of view of Lewis Carroll's works like Alice in Wonderland and, uh, and, and trying to differentiate between, uh, you know, sense and nonsense uh, right on the boundary of the unconscious as a surface. And uh, in this book, it seems like what they're doing is that they're taking, um, you know, the literary 
presentation of schizophrenia seriously and trying to look at a logic of nonsense uh, in more depth. And um, and so, you know, basically they're they're taking the schizophrenia is hard for psychoanalysis to deal with, but they're taking what the schizophrenics say as mirrored in the literature and and taking that and saying, well, how does that make sense when they're talking nonsense, when they're talking in delirium? Yeah, um, there's actually a very brief sentence that I'd that we could use to sort of recap the whole notion of desire as being schizophrenic. It's on um, the number of the page in the actual text is page seven. For us uh, in the um, PDF, it is on page uh, 30. And at the top, there is a paragraph that begins, the schizophrenic is the universe. There's no need to distinguish here between producing and its product. We need merely to note that this pure thisness of the object produced is carried over into a new act of producing. So what you have with the uh, with desire in it, in its uh, schizophrenic um, characteristic is that this production process is about a continual conjunction with um, fragmentary objects uh, in 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 the field of production, and just a little bit down the the paragraph there, there is a just after the m dash. It says multiple and at the same time limited. The ability to rearrange fragments continually in new in different patterns or configurations, and as a consequence, an indifference towards the act of producing and toward the product, toward the set of instruments to be used, and toward the overall result to be achieved. So when we think of desire as being schizophrenic, it is this sort of network of incessant connections that are made. Um, this connection of, uh, if you remember, partial objects, a mouth to a breast, and then the the stomach and the intestines to the anus, and then the the shit to the toilet, to the sewer system, and so forth. This This massive, diverse, multiple network of interlocking desiring machines uh, functioning all together. Is, is what they mean by schizophrenic. Um, and as we go, um, we can keep these other questions in mind, connective synthesis, disjunctive synthesis, paranoiac machine and miraculating machine. And maybe at the end, we'll, we'll come back to those questions. But for now, why don't we return to page 36? And- Craig, uh, sorry, yeah, excuse me. I just wanted to ask, so, so the nature of this schizophrenic isn't so much its connectivity so much as it is it is its flowingness nature of it. Is that correct? Where? Um, yeah, I, I because, would say. Yeah, go ahead. Because I'm I'm pointing out to the paragraph just on the previous uh, two pages where the the paragraph that I'm pointing out starts out as saying desiring machines are binary machines. In the middle yeah. of the paragraph, it says desire con constantly couples continuous flows in partial objects that are by nature fragmentary and fragmented. That's right. Desire causes the current to flow. Itself flows in return and breaks the breaks the flow. So it's it's not so much as if it's to say it's a, like it, the connectivity is there, but it's so much. But it, the 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 nature of its character is that flowing aspect. Is that correct? Is that correct? I would say the thing the thing that stands out to me most 
uh, in the part that you just read is that is the notion of uh, fragmentary uh, is by nature fragmentary and are fragmented and this notion of partial objects. And this notion of partial object is made distinct uh, from what we might understand to be global objects. Here's an example of a global object, a man, a woman, right? When we think in terms of the being of those objects, uh, often we think in terms of there being a unity or totality of things. But um, what Deleuze and Gattari are saying is that there's something that exceeds this notion of um, the, the global character of a man or a woman or anything for that matter. Everything has these partial objects that constitute desiring machines. So, for example, um, on, a, on a woman uh, who is lactating, it's, it's her breast, her nipple, connecting to the mouth of a baby, right? And the baby's mouth on that nipple constructs this desiring machine. When the baby's done feeding, that mouth disconnects and then connects to something else. E- either, you know, it begins cooing or it spits up on the, on the towel. This is the example that they kind of go back to again and again, that these machines are constantly connecting and disconnection, connecting at the level of being partial, not global. At the level of being frag- fragmented, right? Well, this so I I've always uh, taken a lot of this in line with how Frederick Jameson writes about postmodern world where we're surrounded by signifiers that are demanding things of us, and a schizophrenic would not actually take things towards uh, the signifiers as they're meant to be, and is able to pass through them a lot simpler versus a person who has some level of ego and is trying to define themselves by those ego those signifiers. Would that apply here, Craig, at all? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think so. And I think that example's right in the text when <clears throat> they're talking about how the psychoanalyst, when it's trying to conduct analysis on a schizophrenic analysand, mm-hmm. the, um, the schizophrenic expresses a sort of celerity or dexterity where, whereby it's able to escape the signifiers or it's able to play the game for a short time, you know, to constantly keep the, the ana- analyst on his or her toes. So it, it, all that to say is that the, um, the schizophrenic is not able to or is not easily subordinated to the, the system of signs that, that we normally uh, maybe take for granted or, or take to be sort of, of givens in our reality. I think, I think the Jameson example is really good, though, because Jameson's whole point is that, like, in postmodern society, we have all these signifiers with no referent, which I think fits in nicely with the way the, the schizophrenic perceives the symbolic order. Yeah, it's, uh, his wording is, um, the schizophrenic thus does not know personal identity in our sense, since our feeling of identity depends on our sense of the persistence of the I and me over time and all of that. Is that, is that Deleuze or Jameson? That's Jameson. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I just really have, that's always kind of stuck with me when reading uh, Deleuze. Uh, They're not necessarily hyper compatible texts, but Mm -hmm. at least is a good lens to be able to understand this more. Uh, Sorry to, uh, let's move on to the next, uh, Part here, Craig. I know sure. 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 Maybe at this point, maybe we can uh, just break into um, the chapter that we we left off at last time on page thirty six. And maybe after reading that, if there's something we don't understand, we can construct what's missing or, or what's implied. Uh, we can do that 
backwards from from that paragraph. So it's on page 13 in the actual text. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. And then page 36 for us uh, on the PDF. It's uh, page 36 on the PDF uh, oh. sent out. That's right. Um, did anyone want to read that? I'll read it. Okay, go, go for it. <laughs> um, with hence. Yeah. Hence, the sole thing that is divine is the nature of an energy of disjunctions. Schreber's divine is inseparable from the disjunctions he employs to divide himself up into parts. Earlier empires, later empires, later empires of, the, of a superior god, and those of an inferior god. Freud stresses the importance of these disjunctive syntheses in Schreber's delirium in particular, but also in delirium as a general phenomenon. Quote, a process of decomposition of this kind is very characteristic of paranoia. Paranoia decomposes just as hysteria condenses. Or rather, paranoia resolves once more into their elements the products of the condensations and identifications which are affected in the unconscious, unquote. But why does Freud th thus add that, on second thought, hysterical neurosis comes first, and that disjunctions appear only as a result of the projection of a more basic primordial condensed material? Doubtless, this is a way of maintaining intact the rights of Oedipus in the god of delirium and the schizoparanoic recording process. And for that very reason, we must pose the most far-reaching question in this regard. Does the recording of desire go by way of the various stages in the formation of the Oedipus complex? Disjunctions are the form that the genealogy of desire assumes. But is this desire, or is this genealogy Oedipal? Is it recorded in the Oedipal triangulation? It is not more likely that Oedipus is a requirement or a consequence of social reproduction insofar as this latter aims at domesticating a genealogical form and content that are in every way intractable. Um, I'm getting a little lost here. Do we want to yeah, stop? Yeah, there, there's a start? lot. Okay, yeah. yeah, maybe the first thing we can just talk about is Oedipus and, and what Deleuze and Gattari are attacking here. Um, the way that I see it is this notion of Oedipus is one of these sort of global objects that I talked about. And, and, and what I mean by global is it's that it's this sort of unitary totality. Um, and in Freud's framework is presupposed as a universal given. And one of the things that this is contrasted against is the schizophrenic and their uh, the sort of movement of desire in the schizophrenic at the level of uh, disjunction, the the incessant dividing uh, oneself up into parts and the reconfiguration of those parts. But in comes, you know, when when Freud's analyzing the the schizophrenic, in comes Oedipus who's this sort of totalizing entity meant to condition all that fragmentariness that the schizophrenic is operating on. I was curious if somebody else wanted to, to get in there. Um, one of the things that um, should be uh, thought about is the fact that, uh, you know, Oedipus is a mediating relationship. So um, one of the things that he's talking about uh, under the cover of uh, Oedipus is Hegel. Um, in other words, uh, Hegel's philosophy is all about mediation, and uh, Oedipus is a mediating 
kind of uh, figure uh, in the sense that the father is mediating between the mother and the child. And, um, and so one of the things uh, that uh, with partial objects is that there's a level at which just the breast and the sucking on the breast matter, just that connection matters, and the, and the global mediations beyond that situation do not matter. And so that's one of the, 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 you know, one of the things that we should keep in mind is that Hegel's in the background here. This is the example earlier of the, the bike horn and the mother's ass not really having any relation except for Beckett putting them together in a text. Yeah. One, one of the interesting things, just, just to uh, go right back to the beginning of this paragraph, and this comes up again and again throughout Anti-Oedipus, is this notion of things like empires, gods, races, and tribes sort of subsisting at the, the very surface level of the, the body without organs where all the disjunctions occur. And Deleuze will say later on, he calls these things intensities in another place that the intensities of race, the intensities of empires, the intensities of gods, the, the intensities of anything of a divine character happens at the level of a disjunction. And so in the experience of a schizophrenic, like he says here, Schraber's divine is inseparable from the disjunctions he employs to divide himself up into parts, empires, 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 gods, and so forth, right? And what Freud is trying to do is he's trying to invert the sort of uh, psychological dynamic that the schizophrenic uh, is experiencing him or herself as. He's saying that this, this notion of paranoia, which is um, that we can either identify or characterize through this disjunctive synthesis, uh, is actually secondary to this other notion of, of hysteria. Cool. Do you want me to uh, keep reading? I can finish out this uh, paragraph. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Sweet. Um, is it not more likely that Oedipus is a requirement or a consequence of social reproduction insofar as this latter aims at domesticating the genealogical form and content that are in every way intractable? Oh, can we just stop there? That, that's yeah. a huge one. Yeah. So just that sentence right there really, I think, encapsulates the entire project of this book. What they're yeah. going to say mm -hmm. is, Oh, did somebody else want to speak up on that? I'm just affirming. Maybe you go ahead first. Okay, Maybe. sure. Yeah, so what they're, what they're going to – the question that they're asking is, is this notion of Oedipus that Freud has put forward, perhaps it's not this, this universal entity that um, he presupposes, but rather it's, um, it's this historical or genealogical derivative that has evolved in, in such a time, it, it, you know, it, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. And now Freud basically is bringing it to light uh, in a new way. Uh, but maybe, Andrew, you want to say more about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is what the major parts of uh, chapters two and three are concerned with, especially when we get to savages, barbarians, etc. You know, this uh, kind of position that Freudian psychoanalysis uh, does and the kind of societal influence it has on uh, the constitution and the Oedipus complex or uh, just generally of taking the Oedipus complex into consideration is immense and uh, this is what as you said is the crux or the kernel of this book I feel and mm -hmm. I really agree with that 
So, yeah. yeah. And I, I think if, you, yeah. if you're listening and, and you're having trouble following this, maybe here's an easy way to think about what um, is being said here. The Luz and Gatari are, are probably going to say something like, um, or they might say something like, it's no coincidence that here in the 20th century that we have the emergence of the nuclear family and we have the emergence of capitalism and mm. in its current form, consumerism and psychoanalysis all at the same time. Isn't it funny how through Freud, how the, the attraction and the appeal of Freud has, has soared in these times? Why might that be the case? Well, if we, if we submit ourselves to Freudian psychoanalysis, what we're doing is we're allowing ourselves to be conditioned by this, this psychological framework, which valorizes this notion of the family through which we can condition all of our desires. And it turns the home and the nuclear family into this place that trains us to be good subjects under capitalism. Mm. And uh, I think that it's maybe somewhere later in the first chapter that uh, they say that psychoanalysis is inherently not very innovative, not very novel, as it's only just continuing the tendency of uh, neurology or just continuing the tendency of neurology of the 19th century in a much, yeah. uh, in, a, in a different way, but essentially the same. And yeah. I think that we should, uh, at this point, address what's going on in the chat, discussion chat. Sure. Uh, there have been a couple of questions posed, namely, didn't Deleuze, just let me find, didn't Deleuze deny the symbolic order? And I feel this is one of the most important distinctions that we need to make going into this book and just going into scriptural analysis generally. And this is what I think I went over in the chat a couple of days ago. Well, no, I essentially, no, they don't, do not deny the symbolic order. They just say that it's uh, one of the many ways in which desire expresses itself. And uh, I mean, if I can find a quote, maybe I can read it again, but it's just one section of desire or one section of the unconscious. And yeah. uh, what they're really critiquing with Lacan is the reductionist tendency and not uh, not that he is uh, incorrect in, it, in any sense. I, I think you're absolutely right, Andrew. And, and now, and we're talking about uh, Jungian psychology and archetypes, and that was a really good thing to pick up on because um, a long, long time ago, I was very much into Jungian psychology. Uh, mm -hmm. Not that I'm not today, but um, it's interesting because Deleuze had a very strong affinity for Jung, especially in the early part of his career. Um, there's also a, a very good piece of secondary literature by Christian Kerslake called Deleuze and the Unconscious, where he talks about Deleuze's relationship with uh, Jungian archetypes and Jung's split with Freud. And uh, I think what's important to note about that is exactly what you said. It's not that Deleuze and Gattari deny that there is a symbolic order. They just deny the form of subordination that it takes under psychoanalysis. Yeah. And I think, um, and this is something that I'm kind of just working on uh, secondarily as I, as I work through these texts and, and try to connect it to my understanding of Jung. Deleuze and Gattari's concept of intensities that we'll see later 
and which here appear as the disjunctions that that occur mm -hmm. at the very surface level of the body without organs, I think are we can in some ways equate them or make them somewhat analogous to uh, Jung's archetypes. I think what they're saying is is that at the unconscious level, there is this um, sort of um, expression of of the unconscious in terms of archetypal content in terms of the way that we think about race in terms of the way that, that we think about mm -hmm. nations and 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 we should make no mistake that um i i mean this could be a a, a bigger conversation about uh deleuze and and carl jung and freud all mm -hmm. as, as as one topic but um I don't think Deleuze wants to completely jettison the work or the, the progress that's been made by somebody like Carl Jung. In fact, the way that he's going to to incorporate him has something to do. Basically, what he, he likes about Jung, uh, as opposed to Freud, is that he understands that the sort of tensions and desire that we experience um, come about in the form of complexes. In, in, in the sort of Jungian definition. And for Jung, the complexes were reflected in these experience or fantasies about archetypes and so forth. And I think we see a little bit of that kind of peppered into the language that, that Deleuze and Gattari are using here. Mm, but I think that, I mean, I'm by no means a leader of Jung, I've never been, but uh, I feel that Deleuze and Gattari, with, especially with their concept of intensities, and it's funny that you um, bring these up in correlation with the archetypes, but I think that generally they go a few steps further than you, whereas intensities uh, have even less hierarchy than uh, maybe archetypes. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not big on the concept, I don't really uh, <laughs> consider myself an expert, but I think that it is more connective and disjunctive and yeah, intense, what other word can I use, than the archetype. Yeah, there is a line later on, I think it's in chapter two, where they say mm -hmm. the first thing that populates on the body without organs are these intensities of race, tribes, divine appellations. And, and it's really curious. Maybe it's something that we pick up later, but um, definitely flag it for now. Yeah. Um, maybe, so maybe we can continue reading. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Who is reading before? For there is no doubt. It's, uh, Doug. Oh, Doug, could you continue? Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> For there is no doubting the fact that the schizo is constantly subjected to interrogation, constantly cross-examined, precisely because his relationship with nature does not constitute a specific whole. The questions put to him are formulated in terms of the existing social code, your name, your father, your mother. In the course of his exercises in desiring production, Beckett's Malloy is cross-examined by a policeman. Your name is Malloy, said the sergeant. Yes, said I. Now I remember. And your mother, said the sergeant. I didn't follow. Is your mother's name Malloy, too, said the sergeant. I thought it over. Your mother, said the sergeant. Is your mother's... Let me think, I cried. At least I imagine that's how it was. Take your time, said the sergeant. Was mother's name Malloy? Very likely. Her name must be Malloy, too, I said. They took me away. To the guardroom, I suppose. There I was told to sit down. I must have tried to explain. 
I really like the image of authority that they used here as one uh, to parallel what happens in psychoanalysis, basically an eliciting of intensities, names, relationships, and then having them being conditioned in such a way as to construct a profile of the person who's being interrogated. I think this is um, a really uh, interesting and positive way to look at um, the way that Deleuze and Guattari are, are sort of uh, juxtaposing the schizophrenic against the, the psychoanalytic. And uh, this really correlates with how Marx's team begins his introduction to my uh, Penguin's edition, right? And I think uh, many of you have it as well. So he starts lie down then on the soft couch, which the analyst provides and try to think of something different. The analyst has endless time and patience. And this is what we've seen here. I mean, he can interrogate for hours. He can interrogate and pose the same questions over and over again until he arrives at the the answer that that he wants to. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's almost and, like they're trying to elicit a confession. Once they get the confession, yeah, if yeah. you're not, you'll be made guilty. And that's the image that Beckett is painting here. I, uh, while reading this, I paint uh, in my mind some kind of dim room in which the uh, analysis is portrayed, I don't know, tied up in a chair and <laughs> questioned, cross-examined again and again. That's right, yeah. I'm curious, uh, is there anybody who's unmuted, be unmuted to ask a question about that? Don't be shy. Otherwise, maybe we can continue reading. Can we have someone else continue reading? I think I can do this now. Right? Okay, go for it. So, we cannot say the psychoanalysis is very innovative in this respect. It continues to ask its questions and develop its interpretations from the depths of the Oedipal Triangle as its basic perspective. Even though today it is acutely aware that this frame of reference is not at all adequate to explain so-called psychotic phenomena. The psychoanalyst says that we must necessarily discover Schreiber's daddy beneath his superior god, and doubtless also his elder brother beneath his inferior god. At times, the schizophrenic loses his patience and demands to be left alone. Other times, he goes along with the whole game and even invents a few th tricks of, it, of his own, introducing his own reference points in the model put before him and undermining it from within. Yes, that's my mother, all right. But my mother is the Virgin Mary, you know. One can easily imagine Schreiber answering Freud, yes, I quite agree. Naturally, the talking birds are young girls, and the superior god is my daddy, and the inferior god is my brother. But little by little, he will surreptitiously reimpregnate the series of young girls with all talking birds, his father with the superior god, and his brother with the inferior god, all of them divine forms that become complicated, or rather, desimplified, as they break through the simplistic terms and functions of the Oedipal Triangle. As Ertal put it, I don't believe in father, Mother got no papa, papa mummy. Yeah, um, I I always when I read this paragraph, <clears throat> and and when I read this paragraph in my graduate seminar, this is one of those points where we reiterated the the idea that um, this is not meant to um, sort of romanticize or celebrate schizophrenia uh, as as a clinical condition. But the way that it's rendered here provides us with a thumbnail sketch of our model for revolution, uh, mm -hmm. which is any time this sort of dominant order becomes imposed upon us, what are some tools that we have at our disposal to escape at our, at our disposal to escape it? Um, one of those tools is to play the game or to be outside the game and to sort of move back and forth between um, those two modes of acting. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly it's not a romance. It's still a tragedy. It's just a tragedy that uh, we're learning something from here. Yeah, that's right. Um, let's pick up the uh, the next section, uh, desiring production. I'll go ahead and grab that one. Okay. Uh, desiring production forms a binary linear system. The full body is introduced as a third term in the series, without destroying, however, the essential binary linear nature of this series. Two, one, two, one, and so on. The series is completely refractory to the to a transcription that would transform and mold it into spe specifically ternary and triangular schema such as Oedipus. The full body without organs is produced as anti-production. That is to say, it intervenes within the process as such for the sole person, purpose of rejecting any attempt to impose on it any sort of triangulation implying that it was produced by parents. How could this body have been produced by parents when by its very nature it is such eloquent witness of its own self-production, of its own engendering of itself? And it is precisely here on this body right where it is, that the Newman is distributed and disjunctions are established. Independent of any sort of projection, yes, I have been my father, I have been my son. I, Anton Todd, am my son, my father, my mother, and myself. The schizo has his own system of for situating himself at his disposal because, first of all, he has at his disposal his very own recording code, which does not coincide with the social code, or coincides with it only in order to parody it. The code of delirium or of desire proves to have an extraordinary fluidity. It might be said that the schizophrenic passes from one code to the other, that he deliberately scrambles all the codes by quickly shifting from one to another, according to the questions asked him, never giving the same explanation from one day to the next, never invoking the same genealogy, never recording the same event the same way. When he is more or less forced into it and is not in a touchy mood, he may even accept the banal Oedipal code, so long as he can stuff it full of all the disjunctions that this code was designed to eliminate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really love this section of the writing because <clears throat> as an artist and as a musician, um, this is something that you can really tap into in terms of uh, you know, sort of changing your process daily or or at least regularly if you kind of get stuck in a rut um this this might be a way that we can also talk about our process as artists um being edipalized when we subject ourselves for example to well here's the model that i'm trying to achieve i really love the band bon jovi and i just want to sound just like bon jovi so i do the hair i do the good you know i do the jean jacket i do the guitar i look just like them basically i'm a second order version of the band Right. However, um, that that could in and of itself be a form of edipalization, that we have this this term, this condition, this other idealized form of something conditioning the way that we conduct our creative activity. Um, this is kind of one of my readings of it. Um, I'm curious if anybody else has any uh, sort of connections. To that. It's not dra mine's not drastically different from yours. Uh, I, again, I always go back to Frederick Jameson's talk about schizophrenia and postmodernism because I think it applies so very directly throughout this. I mean, throughout a lot of Deleuze's work, but when he talks about uh, MTV mm -hmm. came out and is basically filled with constant signifiers that don't necessarily have any larger connective tissue between them. That's schizophrenia inside of culture. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that applies here when the schizo 
basically forms his own signifiers as he's world. He sees it very differently. He doesn't see signifiers as you or I might or normal people uh, who see things in a very sort of edible parental process. His is sort of birthed and his fount is almost himself uh, right. for those. I, I love thinking of it that way. So that brings up a kind of worry I have with this uh, picture here, which is that it's very kind of um, alienating in a way and producing loneliness to me that uh, there's, you know, if the schizophrenic is operating with their own sort of code of delirium and scrambling all the other codes that that uh, is going to make communication difficult and, and that would be alienating. Well, um, I don't know, alienating, but what kind of communication is um, desirable to you? And what kind of communication are we losing ourselves uh, ourselves uh, with uh, the model you're proposing? I feel that the communication offered by the Oedipal triangulation or any uh, kind of uh, ternary or triad is uh, by itself not really particularly interesting. Yeah, I think here's maybe where the model of the uh, bricoleur comes in and, and that what you're doing is trying to communicate with these bits and pieces, you know, repurposing them. So I think maybe that's what saves us here. Yeah, I think from the perspective of, of an artist or a revolutionary, I, I think it would be the case that um, they would be amenable to the idea that there can be sort of tentative arrangements, tentative organizations, um, but there would be a commitment to the the fluidity of desire as as the sort of um, the ro- the revolutionary or aesthetic mode. Um, th- this isn't to say that communication would be impossible. I I, I don't think so on, on Deleuze and Gattari's terms that it ever would be because there's always a sort of base level consistency that if we were to completely evacuate all the codes, we would be dead. Mm. Well, and I think, I a, think a lot of this, uh, to go back to their rhizomatic term decalcomania, when we talk about the map and being able to approach things from wherever we happen to come in at, uh, throughout this, they use the term triangulation over and over and over coordinates as though it's how you define where you sit inside of society or your location of it. So by nature, I think we have to have some level of commonality when we discuss where I'm at versus where you're at, or we want to find, you know, in, in common. But uh, a lot of this is also about how we make those sort of leaps, that, at least to me uh, as an artist. Uh, we make those leaps where things connect in unique ways for us that they don't for other people, because by nature of them not necessarily being in the sort of semiotic order that people have. Brooks, I kind of I, I wanted to go back to um, something that you said about MTV because I think it's Im- important in terms of um, uh, sort of previewing where they're going to go with this, um, especially, especially especially as it relates to capitalism I, in the in the in the sort of heyday of, of MTV, which for me would have been the late '80s up to the mid '90s. Uh, it wasn't uncommon on MTV to see this sort of uh, appropriation of absurd or spastic images all lumped together that really didn't have any sort of uh, meaning in them, or they were images emptied of meaning. And this, I think, was a testament to the fact that under capitalism, there there are going to be these institutions capable of mimicking the schizophrenic 
mode of production. But those things are really just ways that they, they do so by, by forming themselves as a commodity. Yeah, so someone in the chat saying, uh, in their plateau on becoming a body without organs, they're explicit and absolute destratification is a terrible idea. Yeah, you always need a little bit of this structure, they say. And I feel that this is uh, extremely evident in the last plateau or next, the penultimate plateau on uh, smooth and striated spaces. It's not that we should always opt for extremely smooth or extremely, extremely striated, I would even say capitalist spaces. One needs uh, kind of, well, Kent is not going to like the term, but mediation between these two, right? Yeah, that's right. In in I'm sorry. In the discussion, uh, Martini he asked, "Can we talk about memes and how they are schizo?" I I, I think um, the meme is an incredible medium, you know, uh, that we can use to sort of explicate what's 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 happening here in the text. I mean, there's sort of a template and format for a meme that we could think of as striated, but the sort of trajectories that memes have taken over time express that sort of smooth schizophrenic quality that we're talking about. They very much do. Mimetic conversation is fascinating. Uh, I've, I've spent a great deal of time trying to uh, uh, learn about it and read about it. Uh, there's some great books out of MIT Press, actually, about uh, sort of the world of mimetics. But when we're talking mm. about a singular image that itself is a reference uh, semiotically to a handful of other images that themselves are also <laughs> semiotically referenced, we become seven or eight steps removed for what I think uh, Deleuze and Guattari here are talking about, that normal mind. And instead, we very much have joined sort of somewhere in the middle between that normal and the schizophrenic. We still have a place to be able to say we are triangulated. We are located somewhere and we have a commonality of conversation because of that. But we are so far removed from that very basic level of uh, the mapping of life that it, it's, it gets very fast. I, it's one of my favorite things to sort of watch and see how it works. I'd love, I, does anyone have thoughts on that? Because it would be a worthwhile thing for us to actually have a discussion on memetics and Deleuze, because I think there's a lot of crossover. I, I'd be interested to, you, you were talking about some text that you looked at. Maybe that's something that we could link and-, and I will share out for sure. Yeah, turn that into a, uh, another discussion sometime in the coming week. I mean, I think um, memes are, you know, very illustrative of a lot of different things in Deleuze. The notion of uh, the, the repetition of the meme and the differences between them changing what they mean and um, the way they're put together from all these disparate elements that have their own sort of, uh, you know, code and sort of the sort of motifs of the meme that we expect that have kind of just come together spontaneously. Right. Yeah. Another example that was used when I was uh, taking my seminar on Deleuze and, and, and right now it's kind of dated, but at the time that Deleuze uh, was very popular, at least became popular, um, is, is the idea of uh, the remix that we don't view songs anymore as these sort of global entities. There are things that can be broken up and parsed out and turned into new things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, um, yeah, in like the world of uh, 
you know, DJing records and mixing things together. There's the so-called third record, which is, you know, the, the blend between when you've got the fader on both of them you, and, uh, yeah, kind of yeah. abstract third record exists out there in the space of possible music. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Shall we continue reading? We don't have much more to go. Mm. All right. Um, that's right. Here, I'll do that one. So Adolf uh, Wolfley's drawings reveal the workings of all sorts of clocks, turbines, dynamos, celestial machines, house machines, and so on. And these machines work in a connected fashion from the perimeter to the center in successive layers or segments. But the quote-unquote explanations that he provides for them, which he changes as often as the mood strikes him, are based on genealogical series that constitute the recording of each of his drawings. What is even more important, the recording process affects the drawings themselves, showing up in the form of lines standing for catastrophe or collapse that are so many disjunctions surrounded by spirals. I mean, this, just stopping there for a moment, that I just want to connect this to the notion of the remix yet again. I mean, think about it. There, there came a time in history about 25 years ago when remix albums were a thing. Like, hey, let's just buy the remix album, and here are all these artists on one album. And that in and of itself, that in and of itself becomes a kind of recording process. Ah, so now we've we've created this new concept of the remix album. And now artistically, we can think in terms of that. Maybe this is something that we're striving for as we create what would be the 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 initial release. And then following that, we'll have the remix release. Um, so anyway, going on, just finishing up here. The schizo maintains a shaky balance for the simple reason result is always the same, no matter what the disjunctions. Um, although the organ machines attach themselves to the body without organs, the latter continues nonetheless to be without organs and does not become an organism in the ordinary sense of the word. It remains fluid and slippery. Agents of production likewise alight on Schreber's body and cling to it. The sunbeams, for instance, that he attracts, which contain thousands of tiny spermatozoids. Sunbeams, birds, voices, nerves enter into the changeable and genealogically complex relationships with God and forms of God derived from the Godhead by division. But all this happens and all is recorded on the surface of the body without organs. Even the copulations of the agents, even the divisions of God, even the genealogies marking it off into squares like a grid and their permutations. The surface of this uncreated body swarms with them as a lion's mane swarms with fleas. And that I'd just like to... Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. To briefly comment on the beautiful writing on the last few paragraphs that we've read. Yeah. And uh, it really goes to show how, I mean, you can have very, very dense discussions like we did last time involving Marx and uh, economies, et cetera, et cetera, and really complex co uh, concepts. And then we go into this, uh, I w won't say mellow, but uh, much more easier to grasp, easier to read, and uh, something that is a much more pleasurable read. But I would also like to uh, go back to one of the examples that they give here with Adolf Wolfley, right? Mm -hmm. when, when they say... So let me just find this. What is even more important, the recording process affects the drawings themselves, showing up in the form of lines standing for catastrophe or collapse. 
right? No, wait. <laughs> oh, sorry. And the machines, this is what I meant, and the machines work in a connective fashion from the perimeter to the center in successive layers or segments. But the explanation that he provides for them, which he changes as often as the mood strikes him, are based on genealogical, etc., etc. And here they really beautifully outline how uh, both the connective, con connective and the disjunctive synthesis work together almost and even simultaneously at, at times, because, and especially in works of art. And uh, that just goes to show that these synthesis don't even need to be applied always to some economical aspect, you know, right. capital going towards its end, et cetera, et cetera. It's uh, present in art, it's present everywhere. That, that's, that's, that's great. I think, too, the notion of the artist um, as a subject is one that's not fixed over time as well. Um, you know, I've been thinking now about the the notion of a remix, um, and even beyond the remix, think about as recent as ten years ago, maybe fifteen years ago, even when bands like Radiohead and Nine Inch Nails started releasing the stems from their recording sessions out to the general public just for use. Um, mm -hmm. Even the way that we consider those those fragments uh, uh, in terms of them being property. Um, there are some like uh, Creative Commons property that that comes from these artists that um, <clears throat> that you or I could use to to remix or create our own music if we like. Uh, however, in this case, it does connect back to the body of capital because in some ways those things are used as a way to advertise an album to generate interest in an artist so that they can maintain their livelihoods and also fill the pockets of the recording company that they're attached to. Mm -hmm. But isn't that also uh, makes sense because these are this reproduction and commodification of this original act of, you know, sampling and underground music and people using the Amen break to create the entire genre of jungle music and, mm -hmm. um, you know, this kind of uh, model of ideal culture. And then we see the, uh, you know, this uh, degradation of it almost. Yeah, yeah. The, the the way that um, the the sort of connection that I'm making, like like take drum and bass for example. Um, you you brought up the Amen break. You know, here's this thing that was extracted from a genre of music and probably would have been forgotten had it not been found serendipitously, and then, like you said, spawned this whole new genre of uh, drum and bass. Um, that to me is 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 a sort of like a shift in the mode in the way that we think about art ah there's this whole resampling element and it it began as a sort of underground movement but then slowly became appropriated into the the body of capital like i mean you're hearing drum and bass and and everything commercials and the street fighter game and 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 everything else after that to the right. point where it became or truck ads and yeah truck ads it, it just became a a cliche and redundant and and it's interesting now too when i talked about artists releasing stems and things like that uh, there seems to be a tension between uh the the body of capital uh, and this this sort of movement away from capital uh, and i'm going to put a question mark behind that because i don't know if they're truly moving away when when certain artists are like, hey, we're going to create a sort of sharing economy here, or I'm going to give you these things gratis for now, and 
you know, I just want to show my appreciation to you. And um, even now in the, in, in the times of, of coronavirus, you see so many companies. And since I deal with music, I these companies just giving away products for free. Uh, mm -hmm. Is this just a an initial reaction in order to sort of build up the social capital of these entities? You know, something for the time being that later on that will will pay for in another way, um, that will sort of draw us back to the body of capital. Or are there genuine trajectories away from the commodification of music in these little experiments that artists are conducting? I, I think it's really interesting to think about. And I, mean, I think that is the question that is yet to be resolved, right? The, the 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 line of flight occurs at this boundary between the sort of authentic and inauthentic. Yeah, yeah, that's well said, really. And and I think this is a challenge to closing uh, theory altogether. Here is is there any sort of line of flight? Is there any line of flight that we can actually take away fully from uh, the body without organs under capitalism? Um, it, it, so far, there has been very few demonstrations of the fact, or that possibility, rather. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um, maybe at this time, what we'll do is, I, I think, before we hit the hour, um, what are some questions that are lingering for everybody now that we're yeah. all the way through part two? <laughs> Or maybe like what stood out to you the most, or what's been the takeaway? I, from I, I think actually, let's. Uh, I'm going to guess most people are comfortable with the full two hour limit. I'd love to actually, if anyone has questions about the previous part of the section, anything in section two, because this is, again, deeply foundational to the rest of the book and eventually to a thousand plateaus if we ever do get there. All right. Any questions, any thoughts, anything people want to expand on, now would be the time to bring that up. Yeah. I, I just like to uh, mention that, uh, you know, in uh, Difference and Repetition, um, there's this image that comes up of, um, you know, the, the idea is that sense and nonsense play out on the surface and, uh, um, you know, Deleuze says we should avoid the heights and avoid the depths and concentrate just on the surface where the sense and nonsense uh, uh, keep transforming into each other. And and the, the the and then the surface has cracks in it, and um, and and then he has this image of ants coming in and out of the cracks of the in the surface on the in the desert, and I think that that's kind of like the the uh, the image that that has been elaborated on here in anti edifice those because he, here he's talking about the swarms of fleas. In the in the uh, in the lion's mane, and uh, and so the, there's this sense of swarming uh, as being you know the kind of the foundational activity of the um, of the desiring machines. Yeah, that image in particular strikes me because I mean when we think of a lion, here we have the king of the jungle, apex predator, right? But yet. Uh, on the surface of its body is this multiplicity of 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 fleas, right? Often, what are thought of as an under, undesirable uh, entity <laughs> and not very powerful, right? And I think one of the things that they're attempting to articulate in their ontology, upon the surface of even the most distinguished and um, 
maybe even fascinating, strong uh, global ent- global objects such as a lion. You know, there exists this other sort of ontological element, which is either feeding off of, you know, eating up the little skin flakes that are in the lion's fur, right? Populating uh, its hair and basically, you know, flourishing as a community, you know, on, on the surface of this thing that's thought to be the, the king of the jungle. Uh, to me, this, this, this sort of encapsulates the essence of what they're talking about, even, even when we think of a global object such as a lion, there's going to be this um, this multiplicity. Oh, I, maybe actually, maybe I'm making a mistake right now because even the lion is uh, a conjunct of that multiplicity. So I have a probably going to be a stupid question of ask chapter. It, oh, you're you're cutting out, Brooks. Can um, you say that uh, earlier in the chapter and throughout? I think I'm going to be the stupid question of the day, but I I've always been curious. Um, they use the phrase, especially with the body without organs, it falls back on Ilse Rabatsur, and mm-hmm. in every translation I've seen, they actually are, make a point to put in the French <laughs> translation here. Uh, in a book that constantly has very very kind of beautiful poetics, it's always felt like a very awkward phrasing. It uh-huh. falls back on all production. I my brain for some reason is unable to. What? Did, why did they choose that phrasing? What does it fall back falls back on mean in this context? Um, I noticed that myself. Uh, that there was a place, and I, I have to find it again. But there's a place where it uses the term overlap as as a I believe a synonym for that. And so you know, it's kind of like it seems to me it it kind of means that. You know, this new thing is produ- produced. The you know this third thing, the body without organs. But but then that just overlaps with uh, what was there before. Yeah, it's a. I've seen people say uh, like I think we subsume production uh, encompasses. But it's just I've always wondered because it's just such an awkward wording why they would choose because they don't they don't make a lot of weird choices like that without having some reason. So I figured I'd ask. I think I think uh, them saying it falls back on implies that it constructs a surface to mm-hmm. a top of and you know just going back to this word of uh, overlap too that the it falls back on means that okay we have the recording surface of desire and as uh, production takes place this other movement of recording happens simultaneously and it's maybe maybe an image that we could think of. A, eruption and all the ash falls down on the um, on the community where, where the volcano has erupted and people are walking in the ash and cars are driving over it and then maybe even more ash is falling as we go so it's as if the if, if we think in in the analogy that I'm creating here uh, of recording as being this this ash sort of layering over everything there are things being like sort of impressed into it and then more ash falling onto it, and then more impressions being made, and it creates one sort of contiguous um, productive entity. Yeah, the the PDF uh, we've been reading from uh, goes about it, uh, calls it a verb, uh, it's the noun rebethlement, uh, used by authors here and in numerous instances in the text below, has several different connotations. 
uh, in descriptive geometry to describe the rotation of a plane so as to coincide with another plane that's where they intersect, uh -huh. usually followed by a reverse rotation back to its original position. Uh, it's a retreat to a previously held position, a rebattlement is a more sure. movement, and a reduction to a lower level. In the English text below, it will be translated in various ways depending on context. Just that French uh, to English always loses something, so I've always found it interesting. So I've looked it up on Larousse, actually, and the, the main definition is bring back or apply a cover, a leaf, a panel, a piece of paper. So the explanation actually is close the lid of a trunk. And this really coincides with what Craig said about uh, bringing back the surface. And maybe the... The verb to fall, I feel, is not the main point. The main point is back. It falls back from some somewhere or some place where it's already been. So maybe it's, I mean, I'm just throwing it out there, but maybe it's uh, a kind of interconnection between the con connective and disjunctive synthesis. Maybe this is what happens after it connects and disjuncts, falls back on itself. I'm not sure. Yeah. They, they want to characterize the movement of recording as being mm -hmm. different from the movement of production as production. I want to bring this up here. I'm not sure I could speculate, but um, if it's related to this, so I might as well just ask um, the notion of the body without organs itself being a product. Um, yeah, how does that fit into this? Well, the, well, they say it's the third. It's a third thing. Um, you know, you have the binary connection, and then, and then, uh, you know, and then he starts out by saying, "This is a third thing that's produced, a new body." There's a question in the chat that I think relates to this. Um, it says in his lectures. Explains socius as a particular social instance, which plays the role of a full body. Is socius different from the body without organs, or an instant, an instance of it, like a more descriptive way of explaining it? Um, one of the things that I wanted to bring up was the fact that the uh, the desiring machines and desiring production and and the socius, you know, they use the term regime that that basically. It's the same thing at a at a at a different level of organization, um, and so I, I and they're like parallel to each other, but they're essentially the same thing. But one is kind of like the macro, and the other is like the micro way of looking at the same thing. Yeah, I think I think it's good to maybe we can sort of circulate this concept of associates because. This is one thing that was the very first time I read the Lozengatari, I read this excerpt here, and this word kind of stood out for me here. The first instance uh, of it in the book begins on, it's actually on page 33 in, in our text. And it occurs in the line, it says, its one purpose is to point out the fact that the forms of social production, like those of desiring production, involve an unengendered, non-productive attitude, an element of anti-production coupled with the process, the full body that functions as a socius. And I, I think the instance that that makes it easy for us to understand, they say it right here, it can be the socius may be the body of the earth, that of the tyrant or capital. So what I think they're, they're talking about here is the body without organs under a particular form of um, social production. 
And for Deleuze and Guattari, historically, there have been three. And the I think the, the defining characteristic of a socius is that in and of itself, it is non-productive. It is um, unengendered. Uh, for example, capital. I mean, people do things in virtue of capital all the time, but capital by itself doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And and one way that I've, I've thought about it, you philosophy lens is that this is, metaphysically speaking, this is a fictional body. It's not a real body. Um, but I think the distinction between fiction and, and real or uh, in, in this instance isn't quite helpful because the way that this fiction, um, you know, so thoroughly conditions the, the, the quote unquote real social field. And this is what they want to highlight is that this non-productive, unengendered, non-productive attitude has this capacity to affect the entire field of social relations and subordinate everything to it. And so the question is, is this anti-production a production of some larger global machine or is it an authentic anti-production you know that's another word that i think we need to unbox a little what do they mean by anti-production elsewhere in the Mm -hmm. text they'll say that the production of a body the production of anti-production is the production of a body without organs and so under capital what does that mean um well when we think of the production of a body without organs as being the production of disjunctive syntheses. There are certain forms of disjunction um, that that we can easily identify under capital. Uh, capital. I mean, namely, just in value, dollar amounts, euro amounts, wh- whatever function of currency you're you're working with. Um, you know, exchange values, uh, for instance. Another form of anti-production under capital is uh, one of the things that capital uses to stimulate itself and revive itself from time to time are things like war, uh, things like imposed austerity, and things like um, redlining of communities in order to create value in some sectors and to keep value from developing in other sectors. So capital capital in any given instance, and, and, and we, we talk of capital here, especially uh, in relation to Deleuze and Guattari, there are many forms of capitalism. There are many ways that it expresses itself. There are similarities across the globe, um, but let's take, for example, a place like Los Angeles where I live. I mean, you have a city in which there is a very highly striated uh, or stratified class system here. And there are neighborhoods where they just don't invest money. But this is one of the ways that capital is able to, to sustain itself is by not pouring itself into those communities. Um, another, I mean, there, there are other ans- anti-production, but I'm, I'm curious if, if others have a Well, yeah, I'd, I'd love to read. I, I posted in the chat. Um... Okay. One of the ones I, I found while I was looking uh, over the weekend trying to figure out what the hell anti-production was, and this helped me understand it. Um, it's two paragraphs. I'll read through it as quickly as possible. Okay. Uh, in regards to the university, the consumer commodity would be considered the knowledge that is being sold to the student, which is produced, and at the end of a course in the form of an awarded 
degree, which can be exchanged for a job, ideally one of capitalist orientation. It is even the case that the student could be conceived of as the commodity themselves, rather than the knowledge gained, which appears in the form of a Guattari is saying that any process that is antithetical to that of the capitalist project will be prevented from emerging as much as possible. The signs that capitalism creates discourage any singular process of individuation and attempt to reroute subjective desires back into capitalist production. This is anti-production. I'm, re mm -hmm. I'm reluctant to use dialectical terms like outside-inside, but it appears from this definition that anti-production is a process instigated outside the individual by capitalism. In the work Deleuze and Guattari carried out together, anti-production represents a moment in production that occurs as a result of primal repression. Mm -hmm. I really like that uh, simple note. Uh, so yeah. it's the, the idea that everything we do is naturally sort of subsumed by the capitalist order, the body without organs we live in now, and anything that uh, exists that may be slightly outside of that, any bit of individuation that can't be subsumed by capital is itself the anti-production. <laughs> so yeah. this, to me, that answers my question before, that it is authentic, it's primal. Yes, I believe so. I, I think one of the things that that, um, and that's from Gattari, right? Is that the molecular revolutions one? Yeah, they're discussing molecular revolution, yeah. I mean, there's a way in which we can think of contagion or plague as a form of, of anti-production itself, too. It doesn't have to necessarily come from the human sector. Um, I mean, think about the ways that the coronavirus has, has forced the hand of capital. I mean, particularly here in the United States, you have one of the most conservative presidents ever partaking in what are, you know, seen, at least in our political spectrum, seem to be some of the most liberal policies that we've ever seen now. Um, that that has, it's basically evolved to the, the point of a necessity that, that, that Trump do so. I mean, with, with bailouts, not only bailing out corporations this time, but bailing out families and individuals. But there is some pushback. There's a limit there. I mean, so. So as we've discussed throughout this chapter, this section, sorry, not chapter, section, uh, Production, social production, desire production uh, are all things that are able to be subsumed, are able to have the body without organs fall back on. Anything mm -hmm. that it cannot is anti-production, and that would include uh, plagues, that would include, uh, I don't know. Revolutionary uprisings. Re revolutionary uprisings, uh, art that is hyper-performative and unable to be... Uh, brought into that there's there's all kinds of ways that we can create things that exist outside of that production but that becomes anti-production itself and also the excess of uh, brooks has a boring job he makes a video game video game by nature is packaged sold commodified but there are aspects of it because i am a subversive person that are unable to be brought into uh, what would be considered the normal means of production or the normal body without organs. And those bits of excess by uh, themselves are anti-production as well. Oh, I'm sorry. Could you repeat yeah. that last question again? Uh, um, I, I produce a commodity. I, every day I'm, I make video games, I make VR stuff. It's commodified, it's sold, it's put into a package, it's sold it of all fucking places, GameStop. Mm -hmm. uh, these things exist. Uh, however, because as I go, I'm naturally a fairly subversive person and I pretend like I'm an artist, uh, there are aspects of that that, well, the overall package is able to be part of desire production, manufacturing production, social production, and able to be subsumed by the body without organs. Mm -hmm. 
accesses to my product that themselves are actually unable to be uh, directly ascribed to the greater audio without organs. And are those things then anti-production as well? Yeah, I wonder about mm-hmm. that because it, it, it seems as if there's like anytime we undertake a project to create something, um, to create capital, but we infuse it with some sort of, um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Like some sort of uh, subversive element. Uh, I mean, at least when it comes to the body without organs under capitalism, capitalism is quite resilient in terms of tolerating certain forms of subversion. It might look at your video game like, oh, how? to it uh we'll just um let that ride for now or we we can somehow incorporate uh that subversive element into the body without capital and maybe even project it more broadly maybe we can uh put that subversive element into uh the production of a clothing line that goes with that or a production of a a series of young adult novels or you know what or or to go directly with uh uh, anti-oedipus it's a book that is absolutely fight i've purchased my copy despite us sharing this as a pirated thing Right. Uh, we're, we're still ultimately selling it. But at the same time, there are certainly aspects of this text that are completely unable to be subsumed by the body without organs that is capital. Right. Uh, they're trying. There are T-shirts. People are making art that they can sell. At, any, at some point, we may uh, you know, try to make a go at doing a living that involves this book. What, what, what then is that? That's capital doing its best to suck us into it. But there are still aspects of this that are anti-production. That's right. I think that uh, going towards answering Brooks's question is uh, incorporating the concept of actualization here, because maybe some of the things you do that we can consider anti-production are not actually actualized in what we characterized earlier as, uh, you know, revolutionary uprisings or some sort of... art that cannot be concealed, et cetera, et cetera, right? Maybe these minor things accumulate and then actualize themselves. Maybe this, not everything that's anti-production needs to be uh, actualized in the moment. Not everything needs to be, I don't know, rupturing in, in such a manner, right? That we can call it a revolutionary uprising. That, that, that's my thought, maybe. I mean, I mean are not... you saying that, that, that the sort of... Uh... It has doesn't have to be in the moment. It can be just the sort of idea that gets propagated and uh, might not be recognized immediately. No, I just feel that later on can be recognized. What Brooks said about certain parts of his um, production of video games, or whatever example we um, try to examine, maybe some of these certain minuscule parts and anti-production actually add up to produce a real rupture that happens mm. as, you know, whatever. Let's say no, a revolutionary right. uprising. Yeah. Uh, what did you say? I, I think I think you're right, Andrew. Mm-hmm. What, what you're saying is is that the, the sort of sufficient condition for the collapse of capitalism would be a form of anti-production that, that, com- that completely, like, opens it up beyond repair. Maybe one way of looking at it is that the kind of re-enclosure of any anti-production by its commodification into capital uh, is never known for sure. So that is still knowledge that we gain. Uh, yeah. But what, I, what I wanted to ask, uh, just from the beginning when we mentioned anti-production and when Brooks read that definition of it being a 
returning of the primordially repressed, whatever, I wanted to ask whether this anti-production is actually instinctive or something willful, because I never thought about this before, but now with that definition, it feels like uh, anti-production may not be uh, something that we are able to will, but something that happens as a direct consequence. I don't know. Does this make sense? I think under advanced capitalism, the 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 forces and agents of capitalism use anti-production as a way to stimulate growth um, and and open new frontiers, uh, commodity frontiers. I mean, I just mm-hmm. think of the the Iraq War as being one of those those cases. Um, we know that the military-industrial complex is a highly lucrative business. Uh, and so, you know, be, behind, like a, after a, a city or a country has been decimated, you have all sorts of figures moving in. You have Blackwater or Z, the, the, the privatized military. You have places like uh, Halliburton or you have Halliburton, Parsons, uh, all of those companies moving in to, you know, rebuild and, and restructure those areas and then, mm-hmm. you know, move on to the next possible venue where they can conduct mm-hmm. war. And it could be something as simple as once upon a time. It's... Oh, Brooks, you cut out. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, once upon a time when you. I keep cutting out is with Mike. Um, is that any better? Is that that seems. That, that works. Yeah, that's um, once upon a time. You could be a, a hard alt-right reactionary Nazi online, and there was no way to actually have that be commodified. Right. Uh, that's that's changed yeah. drastically thanks to YouTube and social media and a few other things as mm-hmm. capital sort of figures out how to subsume a lot of those primal, uh, granted, shittier sides of humanity. But it is, I think, still pretty relevant to the discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, what's the simple reading or like what, what can we glean just from a, a, a quick read of that paragraph that you just read? I, I think what... Um, they're trying to say relates to to Schreber and other schizophrenics is that like look there's a way to to escape the the sort of Oedipal triangulation. Uh, one way to do it is is just reject the produced by parents. Okay, now one once you once you assume that it's impossible to be caught within the Oedipal snare. Um, yeah, I'm curious is is your question about like how is that a um, a schizophrenic comes to believe that this is true about themselves? I, I think this is what we're talking about is like, look, if you're creating a body without organs, it is a body of anti-production insofar as you're rejecting those forces that are being imposed upon you. That That's kind of what I'm getting. From. Uh, the way I think about it is that the, uh, you know, the, when you're pushing back um, on uh, the edible mediated way of looking at things, one way to do that is to just take the perspective, no, you know, the person is self-produced, so uh, we have to take seriously their way of thinking in that self-production. And uh, and when we when we do that, we see something different than we would see through the Oedipal lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I the the way that the... he talks about it being a binary linear system, and they say. Ah, stupid microphone. Uh, when they say the full body is introduced as a third term in the series without destroying two than one, two than one, they're almost talking about uh, that 
the the normal person I, i'm going to use the term normie just because my brain does that up now um when, when a normie is created they exist because of how their father and mother and the relation semiotics they have with them and that's the oedipal very classic uh, almost uh, boring and expected way that people are born and people exist and people grow and people become and the body without organs is produced uh, within anti-production they're talking about essentially uh, again to go back to their terms of uh, the concept of the rhizomatic world uh, when people no longer have that very set binary pattern and instead they're a body without organs. The body without organs exists uh, without triangulation as if it was produced by two very simple standard parents. It's much more about the seeing the semiotics differently, having a different set uh, that you grow with rather than those very traditional two than one, two than one. And maybe, no? I, I think that's right. I think, I mean, ultimately their, their ontology is, um, an ontology of multiplicity and this notion that there's a, a third term that can enter the, the process of desiring production of this binary production is one in which um, that third term is able then to condition the any sort of production. And I mean, this <clears throat> the, the Oedipal signifier is despotic in the sense that it becomes a reduction of all production to that Oedipal signifier. And therefore, we we then make a break with this commitment to um, a, an, an ontology of multiplicity. Um, there's actually a paragraph that I've excerpted, excerpted here from uh, one or several wolves uh, from A Thousand Plateaus that might help us in this case. It says, let us return to the story of multiplicity for the creation the substantive marks a very important moment. It was created precisely in order to escape the abstract opposition between the multiple and the one, to escape dialectics, to succeed in conceiving the multiple in the pure state. And I think that line in particular connects with what's going on here, to cease treating it as a numerical fragment of a lost unity or totality, as the organic of a unity or totality yet to come and instead distinguish between different types of multiplicity. And so the, the entry of the Oedipal signifier into the process of desiring production prevents exactly that, that, that ability for us to, to distinguish between different types of multiplicity. Oh, here's one, here's another, here's another, here's another way of serving the body, here's another way of figuring the body, here's our toes way of figuring the body, everything's self-produced, right? But once Oedipus <clears throat> comes into the picture, everything's fucked. Yeah, and I hear in your example, and I hear in your example, uh, an example that Deleuze always uh, goes back to, towards the example made by Spinoza when he says, I think, in the thir third part of his ethics that, and I've just been writing about the ethics in the discussion chat, where he says that we do not yet know what a body can do, and that we fundamentally cannot reach this conclusion, right, in its full form. So yeah, this is uh, what they're getting at, both with your example and both with anti-Oedipus as a whole. It might be okay. worth noting too that this this notion of multiplicity versus um, lost unity or totality is mm -hmm. one which uh, has sort of plagued metaphysics since the dawn of metaphysics, and like if you go to any sort of analytic philosophy class. 
uh, these days, they'll be asking questions like, what um, is the nature of, like, what sort of objects exist in the world? Uh, mm -hmm. So, for example, like, what is a table? Well, it's Adam's arranged table-wise for example, right? And, you know, what is the sort of primary consideration, you know, in any ontology? Is it the smallest absolute or the, the absolutely smallest uh, particle that exists? Is that then, you know, the object, the kind of object that exists in this world? Or is the entire universe... There's a theory uh, called blobjectivism, which uh, <clears throat> considers the, the, the entirety of the universe as one giant object. But Deleuze and Gattari aren't going that way. What they're saying is, is that even a multiplicity, like a pack of wolves, for example, or the fleas on a lion's mane, it's not that these things are, are multiple in any numerical, numerical sense. The multiple is itself its own kind of one, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're not going to draw that line. They're going to think that that line of thinking, for example, is one that has been presupposed time and time again in the history of philosophy. Right. And that within that line of thinking uh, contains the the Oedipal snare. It's it's by believing in in this, you know, basically adopting these sort of metaphysical commitments that we then become trapped um, or we we become able to be trapped by Oedipus. Because we go beyond our ability to think in terms of different multiplicities. Yep. Cool. Are these multiplicities going to end up being related to territories later on? Uh, I, I think so, but could you elaborate your question? Yeah, in what way? Um, I guess uh, my rudimentary understanding of sort of territories being, I mean, in the one sense, physical territories, but also sort of territories of thoughts and ideologies. Um <laughs> Well, one thing we can so, think of, like, so so you want to be able to move between different multiplicities, different territories, not just settle down in one place. Well, let's let's go to a concrete example. Um, let's talk about cats. I just recently watched a cats and their territories, and um, as as I understand it now, cats like I've always understood that cats have territories, but. Um, Sometimes the territories of cats overlap, and the observed behavior of cats has been that um, sometimes a cat will occupy part the part of its territory that actually is part of the territory of another cat, but they will alternate the occupation of that territory. Um, this might be an interesting way to think about multiplicity. Here you have two distinct territories that overlap with one another, but is there any way to make that understanding of territory uh, to be ontologically decisive outside of thinking uh, as an as a multiplicity. I don't think there is. I think that's what Deleuze and Gattari are saying is like when we can think in terms of multiplicities, that allows us to to um, to sort of frame that notion of overlap in a way that doesn't um, bear upon making a hard distinction. <clears throat> I think at the basis. Um, there, there's a few other terms that we need to bring in. So we're, we, we bring in the, the term partial object. Remember that desiring machines are binary machines and they're connected via partial objects. Um, how do they connect with one another? Well, there is a connective synthesis. And then how are those connections then conditioned by the body without organs? Well, through disjunctive syntheses, right? You're cutting out. I think we just lost Craig. Yeah. Maybe his other mic got into the way. Yes, uh, 
I, I would actually refer for that question. Uh, I'll, I'll wait for Craig to reconnect. Um, but it's actually in this chapter, they talk uh, about Adolf Wolfley's drawings. Uh, and I think that's actually fairly applicable when we start talking about the dozens and dozens of types of machines and how they work in parallel, which is mm -hmm. uh, spoken of earlier in the chapter. Uh, it talks about their drawings. And if you haven't seen a Wolfley drawing, uh, they're not dissimilar to how... What are the dynamics of that disjunction? Well, now, now we're talking about the paranoiac yep. machine and the um, miraculating machine. Uh, Wolfley's drawings, oh, okay. if you haven't seen them, are a bit like uh, doodles you'd see now from children if they're trying to fill every section of a page. And there are hundreds of little machines, these tiny things that are working from the center out or outwards in and together mm -hmm. into these larger pastiches of these pretty extraordinary drawings, especially for the time that he drew them. Well, um, this is what we ended the chapter one with, right? Yes. Yes. It's exactly. Section, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And so when he talks about, when they talk about him and his explanations for what those machines do, the machines change as the mood strikes him. Uh, it's based on a genealogical series that constitute the recordings of each of his drawings. What is even more important, the recording process affects the drawings themselves, themselves showing up in the form of lines standing for catastrophe or collapse. Mm -hmm. uh, this, I think, is how he they expect us to have discussions when we talk about our desiring machines and the larger body without organs and how it's recorded, is they do change and they shift based on genealogical series that each one constitutes the recording of the machines and recording of the production inside of our society by our body without organs, which is capital, if I'm reading this uh, correctly. No, that, that's absolutely right, I think. And this is what they start the book with, actually, you know, when they discuss the various machines, how certain bodies incorporate different machines, how certain machines are coextensive with one another. This is the, the real, uh, this is what they discuss in the first few pages. And I would really uh, advise anyone who is still, I mean, wondering about the machines and how they work together, just really go back and work through this again, because they say here, the mouth of the anorexic wavers between several machines, several functions. Its possessor is uncertain as to whether it is an eating machine, an anal machine, a talking machine, or a breathing machine. Asthma attacks. Hence, we are all handymen. And this is the first page, really. Each with his little machines. All right, so everything. Yeah, and right. I think if, if, we, if we combine that with the concept of how a schizo versus, uh, we'll say, a normie uh, uh, sees themselves. See, that sounds like Craig is coming through clear. Oh, sorry about that. Only, only when the film rings, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's it's the idea of um, when a schizo versus a normie. A normie has their very specific triangulation based on the Oedipal systems and the semiotics that came before them. Those machines are fairly defined, whereas a schizo, because their machines change, because machines can change constantly, because as they change, they're being inscribed upon the uh, surface. Uh, as they shift, uh, it actually changes what those machines necessarily are at any time. It's a big difference between how a schizo relates to the socius or the surface and how his work is recorded versus a normie who's got the Oedipal and a very standardized way of having his experience written on the surface is how I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. And then one more important thing to highlight in this is what I wanted to say before when you mentioned the normie and et cetera. I think that, I mean, the losing attorney maybe wouldn't really... Um, like the way you use this because i mean yeah i'm certain that you get it but sometimes it's important to say this again it's not that they're 
reductionist that these people are in themselves uh, lacking of the what lacking what the schizo has, right? The ability, but it's just that it's so hard, hardly repressed. It's so it has so it has been repressed for so so long, right? And it has hardly ever been uh, let out that it's that it also that it almost seems like, it almost seems like it's in existence, whereas it, it actually is there, harbored beneath all of these. Uh, Yes, I would, I, you could even say the uh, lumpen proletariat may be another term for it, where mm-hmm, mm-hmm. their their production is so standardized and so repetitive and basic and leaves no room for excess or primal urges that there's no anti-production happening there. And where, where there's no anti-production, that's what I'm, when I am use the term normie, I'm using it almost as a joke, but that is sort of the mentality, whereas a schizo is very the opposite, where ever, nothing he does, everything he does is anti-production, nothing he does yep. is yep. part of a sort of standardized production format. Craig, I can see you wanting to talk, please say your mic's work. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Um, huh, what should I say? Uh, well, I, I like the idea of the normie as a kind of caricature to kind of, you know, bandy about, like, it, it's just fun. Um, but the one thing about the normie caricature that I'd like to add to it is that normie is neurotic because it's always, whereas the schizophrenic is not. The normie is always worried that it's going to step outside the lines, and that's what makes it more susceptible to the psychoanalyst. Yep. Yes, fully. And I, I think they talk a little bit about, uh, the, uh, they get into the paranoiac at some points throughout this, and I think a lot of that is very much driven by that same desire that the normal has. It's a really good point. Yeah. I like normie as a philosophical concept, but not as an indictment of somebody else. Because... No, it's not intended <laughs> to be an indictment. No, for sure. <laughs> no, for sure not intended to be an indictment. It's a, uh, normies are allies to the revolutionary if we can only speak to them. That's right. <laughs> um, um okay well so so where are we there is actually a question about the 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 whole paranoiac um miraculating machine uh distinction and and what's going on there um before i i I have a take on it and i i'd like to sort of improvise on it just for my just to see if i have it but i'm I'm curious if if somebody else would like to take a shot at that like what's the difference between a paranoiac if you were held at gunpoint and somebody said, what's the difference between a paranoiac machine and a miraculating machine? What would you say? I'd just say shoot. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right? No? I'm not even going to try. <laughs> well, the, the way that, um, that I understand it is uh, remembering that the, the, the paranoiac machine is that which is always trying to break from the suffering of being organized. It's trying to break into the body without organs to access that um, non-engendered, undifferentiated fluid, which is constitutive of everything, but it can't do it, right? And so there's this, always this tension. And at the, at the surface of trying to break into the, the body without organs, one of the, the, the sort of movements that happens in virtue of that is this creation of disjunctions. Right. And so these these disjunctive syntheses populate the surface of the body without organs. Then what happens is as these disjunctions are created and uh, production is impacted or influenced in virtue of the body without organs, 
that production falls back upon the surface of the body without organs, whereby it is then again miraculated and seen as a quasi-cause to all production. So it's almost like the, the surface of the body without organs, just to, to bring in just more uh, images, it, it's sort of like effervescence, where this effervescent fume infuses all of production and it makes it seem as if, ah, okay, the reason that... Um, we have so many uh, skyscrapers and so many wonderful uh, freeways and overpasses is because of capital. And the reason that that guy is doing that over there is because it makes money. And it, 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 it sort of bears upon our phenomenology of capitalism, but it's not completely reducible to phenomenology um, because it, it does, capital has a, a sort of numerical aspect, a financial aspect. If, if the money's not there, it can't be built. Too. So it's it's in the accountancy, it's in our phenomenology, it's all over the place. It's capital is miraculated in, in every aspect of production under capitalism. So um, as, as uh, you know, Craig, I come to this through Zizek and Lacan. So a lot of mm -hmm. my concept of the paranoiac comes from uh, sort of Lacanian texts and his lectures. Um, for me, it's uh, the, uh, I go back to, and they, they alluded to this, I think, in the first section, that uh, all knowledge by nature is paranoiac. Uh, because right. knowledge itself uh, has the same structure ultimately as paranoia because um, it, it is based on the alienation of the ego. All mm -hmm. knowledge ultimately does that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is our constant paranoia because we're wanting to ultimately have self-mastery and unity and control the ego. And the more we have knowledge, the more we kind of realize it's impossible. And so it right. creates this sort of natural uh, uh, fight. Uh, my brain is not finding the right word for it. Uh, conflict uh, that ultimately uh, generates paranoiac knowledge. It doesn't have to be necessarily uh, anything in particular. It's just that's generally where that comes from. And so because of that, uh, again, to, to go back to the term uh, normie and, and how the paranoiac and other machines play is uh, it comes from the place of uh, the knowledge that we come from the paranoiac specifically versus, say, the schizo. Paranoiac is out trying to learn their place, to come at it from a place of ego. Where are the semiotics in my order that I can find? I've got a place in this world if we think of the uh, earlier there was a piece of a Catholic woman posted uh, had a piece about Deleuze uh, that we kind of removed from the channel, but very much the classic religious. I get to learn my place in the world. Am I a good boy? Does the big other see me as that? And the more knowledge we gain, the more we realize actually we're alienated. Uh, we're separated. And this is all illusory knowledge ultimately. Right. Uh, yeah. I, a big driver. Yeah. I love that connection between uh, paranoia and knowledge because it, it's not only about um, establishing the fixity of certain kinds of knowledge, but to allow, allowing that fixity to be presupposed in every movement of thought. Long sigh, right? Yeah. As we realize, we know nothing. Uh, it reminds me of, um, it kind of takes me back to reading David Hume and um, induction, I, not, not to bring too many figures in here, but uh, just the notion that uh, just because things were the way they were at one time doesn't mean they're going to be the same way again. Like there's no guarantee that when we wake up tomorrow morning, that the laws of physics are still going to be attacked. Um, the famous example, right? Humans, uh, the sun, etc. Yeah. 
And so, I, I mean, compounding that with our discussion of, of Lacan and, and Deleuze here, that that sort of perennial uncertainty um, and uh, about what we truly know and our intention to create this fundamental criterion of knowledge is itself a paranoid activity uh, on, on the basis of, I think, what this comes from Lacan, right, Brooks? Yes. Yeah. I, uh, generating knowledge is by nature. It comes from uh, when we are very, very young, when we are first born, we have no ability to take care of ourselves. And that is something that we know and we keep with us through the rest of our lives. It's impossible to get rid of the idea that uh, actually we have no self-serving or self-capability we are unlike other animals in that sense and yeah. that that lack inside of us this is a hyper lacanian stuff i'm not saying this is delusion right now it's, yeah. it's it's deeply based in that lack that we know forever we actually can't do this ourselves but we constantly are trying to fool ourselves into believing that through knowledge and learning and making the world a better place or whatever you want to say but that naturally generates more paranoia because of the conflict and I know I'm about to explode the discussion, but then we can also talk about this in terms of the rise of somebody like Jordan Peterson, who is ultimately the the I would say the um, the paradigmatic expression of Oedipus in our time. I mean, there's young women and men calling this guy daddy for one thing. And what he promises you is what any good um, huckster is going to promises you is a certain level of certainty. Hey, if you experience uh, a sense of ennui or frustration in this world, start by cleaning your room, stand up straight, get fixed in a certain way. No, I think what I really find interesting with Peterson. I'm told sorry, you. Go ahead. He's a sophist. I mean, I think it's very good to bring that up. Whose cat is that? Is that a cat? I, I think it was someone laughing. Andrew, why don't you go? <laughs> yeah. oh, what, what I found interesting with Jordan Peterson, what Craig said, I mean, this doesn't differ much from many of the psychology, life coach, get better yourself. I mean, what I would call bullshit generally. But I think that what happened, what happened with Peterson, what really propelled him was that he labeled himself, he built himself as someone, as somebody who knows philosophy, somebody who can really dissect these postmodernist philosophers. He started talking about this and then people just unleashed upon him. He's not and much Doug, different than... Doug, I know you had a response in there. Yeah. Oh, I guess I was just saying, I, I think it's totally great to bring up uh, Jordan Peterson as an example of a sophist in this discussion of... Uh, the search for knowledge and how that alienates you. And uh, I mean, I think that ties back into uh, Socrates as the philosopher who knows nothing. Um, I'm, a, I'm a deep believer in the concept and it's uh, kind of through a lot of things I've done that the more we learn, the more we learn that we know nothing. Uh, but, yeah. uh, the idea for me, for Jordan Peterson, where it touches here is, uh, and you see it, I think, in his, what I call the train to the Nazi land. Uh, he's very much a first stop on that. People who are by nature very alienated will pick up a book that says, you do these 12 things and you will be happy. His book is The 12 Things to Happiness. It's it's the most absurd conceptual thing but people mm -hmm. love that they do it and a few other things will make your life better i 
I, I'm not going to say having a dirty room is the better choice. No, having a clean room is the better choice. Do some exercise. That's a good idea. These are these are things that are like stupidly simple. But what happens is when you do all 12, then you're not happy. And then you start looking for, well, what will make me happy? Oh, if I get rid of the Jews. And you think it's not that simple. It very much is. It's the the alienation and separation of a populist class you see very quickly turn this nasty direction when they aren't able to see i did everything right this is basically my father's and fox news's story i did everything right why don't i have the things that i was promised so from that we can derive um stop genocide keep a dirty room <laughs> there we <Yeah>. go <laughs> brooks, brooks i just want to add to everything you just said was something that henneret was was trying to convey with what what she was trying to uh, write when after the Nazis were being, uh, uh, um, going through their court trials, everything about that was the epitome of what the banality of evil is about. Where we always think there's some sort of like some sort of like there's a huge mastermind behind the plight of what Germans did to the Jews about that stuff, but in actuality, it was there was nothing there. And she was trying to convey that that vapidity is what's being uh, marginalized most of all with the rhetoric that you know people like uh, Jordan Peterson try to use when they try to convey something that that seems complicated, but actually it's very simple in its context. No, without a doubt. And it's um, you know I was talking with a few of you about kind of where I started in high school. I was a big Ayn Rand fan. Please forgive me. Do not ever mention that again. <laughs> um, Can we ban this guy? Yeah, um, but I, I was like, I, I was a disaffected white suburban male. That is a thing that exists, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for that position in general because I was that. It's, it's a world where uh, you are promised and told you're the best thing in the world, and for some reason you're not, and you get very upset when you're confronted with that. Uh, and as you start getting out into the real world. Obviously, positions change, and I've kind of come, we'll say, slightly more left in the spectrum. But the the reality is it's um, a difficult place for a lot of people to be where, uh, and I have empathy for it, all of us want to belong. We want to feel safe, and we want to know, what do I have to do? Please tell me. And I think a lot of that, when we talk about the Oedipal, and that's this chapter, when he's talking about Oedipus and our structure with that and the, the way that we have two to one, those are the things that really have made people over time very standardly. And to me, the schizophrenic is able to respond to capital by going, no, I'm, I don't have a center place. I am a map, not a tracing. I'm, I'm all and nothing at the same time. This this sort of what we would call complex schizophrenic talk uh, does a lot of great deals of anti-production that can actually start moving things along. That's a, Again, this all, all just my view of the text, but it's one of the things that has always really spoken to me about it. So as an ethical prerogative, um, I think it's important to consider um, the, the notion or possibility of refusal that's, uh, that, 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 that's at state or refusal as a sort of praxis uh, in the sense that there are oedipalizing forces out there and maybe as a sort of first order um ethics for somebody attempting to embody this work they need or they, they would do well i should say to um develop a practice of, of of refusal of certain kinds of oedipalizing forces but 
as we know, the schizophrenic sometimes adopts the Oedipal just to explode its distinction with all, uh, to explode it from within with uh, all the disjunctions that it then puts into the, uh, the Oedipal triangle. Um, it reminds me of something that I had heard uh, David Lynch once say. David Lynch once went to a psychoanalyst or some some sort of psychiatrist, and he asked him a question. He's like, he's like, doctor, he's like, is this analysis in any way going to affect me negatively in terms of my creativity? And the analyst said, you know, it is possible. And at that point, David Lynch stood up, shook the guy's hand. He's like, thank you, I'm done here. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, only that to highlight, like, I mean, do we, you know, as as folks intent on, you know, taking something uh, from this text, um, you know, as, as a way to, you know, cultivate our own ethics, you know, how can we be as quick or as perceptive as David Lynch was in that moment to walk out of the analyst moment at the at the drop of a hat? And, and how does that analogy get spread over other kinds of interactions that we have in our world? You just treat everybody like they're potentially trying to, you know, convert you into their cult, essentially. <laughs> but so what, what can we do besides that? Does it maybe be a better question? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's Sorry, one paranoid reaction. Yeah, we could we could certainly fetishize that kind of action. It's like, oh, and, and, and use it as a way to to be very not nice to people. Um, I, I don't think that's what I'm talking about, but I think it's basically elevating a certain sensitivity to Oedipalizing forces in such a way as, um, I mean, I, I know that that I can do this, you know, in certain instances, but, you know, there's still a part of me, you know, I and I'd be willing to bet there's, there's a part in, uh, of each one of us that does from time to time get sort of wafted in by the rhetoric of not necessarily Jordan Peterson, but of these promises of of certainty, of fixity, of a world that's explainable through this sort of unitary concept like Oedipus, but it appears in in all kinds of um, different formations. Um, when you talk about uh, alternatives, uh, the alternative I'd like to offer is that you know, in studying philosophy and looking at all the different philosophies, uh, one of the uh, things that you can try to do is try to see them as different ways of trying to understand the Western worldview. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it seems to me that we have this need to understand the Western worldview, and we're offered all these different perspectives on it by philosophy. And so going through and sorting out those based on what they tell us about the Western worldview, you know, is a, uh, you know, worthwhile task as we try to understand ourselves in these times of crises. Mm. Yeah. And I think from Deleuze and Guattari's perspective, it's, it's the uh, philosophies themselves are enactments of creativity. Um, and it's, it's not so much, you know, in their view, I mean, granted philosophers were trying to come to an understanding of the world, but what we can rescue from any philosopher we believe to be refuted is something of their creativity. How is it that what they said in their times was a, um, an interesting and, um, uh, I would say, um, not only interesting, but exciting sort of uh, problematization of of the world uh, as they saw it. 
you know, another another point is that, uh, you know, these different philosophers, you know, in order to get our attention, they they present us with extreme positions on things. You know, like the reason Freud was, uh, uh, you know, so scandalous and became so famous is because he's, you know, was one of the first ones to talk about sex openly. Mm. Uh, in a kind of academic way. And so, you know, we can see this in Deleuze and Guattari as well, in the sense that uh, what they're doing is they're going to the extreme of, uh, of looking at schizophrenia, which is something that psychoanalysis can't handle very well, and, and trying to use that as a measure for all other things. And, and that's, that's an extreme position as well, but it reveals certain things that would not be revealed otherwise. And, and so that's, you know, to me, that's kind of like the value of a, of a book like this is that it reveals certain things about the Western worldview that we wouldn't know if we didn't go to that extreme position. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> All right. I think uh, with that, we're going to uh, end our two hours. Yep. That actually went by. We made a nice, we made a hell of a dent in this, and we're going to be moving on to section three later this week. Uh, so once again, thank all of you for joining, Craig, Doug, Andrew, and everyone in the chat. Uh, Zarathustra, I know you're muted, but thank all of you guys for joining and taking part. And uh, we will see you guys later this week.